Welcome to Notes from the Field, brought to you by Noeo Science. Gordon, how are you? I am doing great. Uh, I just got back from a herpetology field trip Woo. in uh, the canyon down the Clearwater Snake River Canyon. It was, it's always a little warmer down there and it wasn't, but it wasn't uh, wonderful. The, the warm day was yesterday. Yeah, it really we was. We can't just pick up and go when you've got school and classes to coordinate with students. But we went down there and we, you know, got more than, you know, it barely got up to 60, but it was sort of overcast and That's comfortable sunny. weather. Yeah. Um, but the sunny weather is what brings the lizards out. Yeah. Uh, we did find a couple amphibians. We got the Pacific chorus frog, used to be known as the Pacific tree frog. Oh, when they did that the, change happen? They changed the genus and it's still, oh. it's still a, in the family Hylidae, the uh, tree frog family, but they, well, as far as I'm concerned, demoted it. I, I always like to call it the tree frog. Yeah, but tree now frog, it's a chorus comes, frog. There's some clout there. Yeah. The, yeah. the chorus frogs are in that family, but, and they still have little toe pads, uh, but they tend to be down on the ground. There's probably other inscrutable characteristics that cause the taxonomist to change its genus from hyla to um, uh, Sudacris. Okay. But anyway. And they tend to be a little more diminutive, don't they? The chorus They're songs? pretty small. They're in you know, a spring peeper size. And yeah. Yeah, we found several of those and quite a few long-toed salamanders down by the uh, Soton Creek. Nice. Yeah, logs and stuff. And then the highlight was uh, going up a side canyon and finding a rattlesnake. So we got a northern nice. Pacific rattlesnake and got some good pictures of that and some video. Awesome. Um, yeah, so. This is, you know, one of the, we, I was lamenting earlier about how we've squandered our we squandered our kind of surplus of recordings. And so now you're kind of hearing them as we do them pretty close in time. But I right. think there's a big advantage there. Right. And one of the big advantages, we're talking about stuff that's happening right now. Mm -hmm. And so this is right now, yeah. you know, early spring, early April. The, the If you haven't heard frogs yet, yeah. get out in the morning and evening and listen. Go to yeah. a wet area. They are starting to make a Yeah, make out by noise. our house, we've got the Pacific Chorus frog, <laughs> making a racket. I always have to check myself. Don't say tree frog. Yeah. Guess and what racket I heard this morning from inside my house? What? Sitting on my couch, sitting there getting some preparation for the day. And I heard this, all of a sudden, the chimney pipe started rattling like mad. And what was in there? And rattle, 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 rattle. Stop. Wait about 30 seconds. Rattle, 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 rattle. Stop. Any what? guesses? In, in the chimney, some kind of. What could, be, pipe? what could be rattling that chimney? Well, some animal got in it. Okay. Could be an animal in it. Could be a flicker on top of it, drumming. Uh, ah, there yeah. we go. Yeah. The northern flicker was drumming on the metal stovepipe cap okay. or chimney cap. And it was so loud in the I house. Bet. Go outside and you hear it. It's not nearly as loud, wow. but there he was perched up there drumming away. So listen for drumming woodpeckers. Listen for... Uh, what would you say, peeping frogs? Well, or, yeah, the, the uh, Pacific doing? chorus frog is the um, most recorded frog call movies. Oh, interesting. So like Westerns and like other movies out hawk. West, because if they want to get a frog, I mean, it's just a very common frog ranging all the way up here and down into California. 
And um, so when you hear the typical ribbit that's uh, often in the background on a Western, it, it's probably the Pacific Chorus Frog. Oh, very cool. Ribbit. Ribbit. And, and we, are, we have a creature feature. We're going to be doing a series of just kind of dives in, into specific creatures. Yeah. To kind of get to, the, get to know them better. And we're, we're not talking about herps no, or birds. I, yeah, I know. We're leaving our beloved behind. And, um, That's right. Breaking form. And uh, diving into one very well-known mammal of yeah. North America that many of you have experienced uh, personally. Some of you may have some pretty cool stories of the raccoon. The raccoon. The raccoon, so, Procyon Lotor. Procyon Lotor. I yeah. love that. I love that scientific yeah, name. Yeah, that's, there's some, there's some really cumbersome scientific names in there. Some that are just that sound good. Yeah, this one sounds good. What a weird animal. Yeah. And kind of a unique animal. Yeah, I mammals. mean, what's interesting, I was looking, I was uh, looking some, doing some research and Linnaeus, you know what he, what he, what genus he assigned it to at first? I can't remember. Ursus. Oh yeah, that's right. They, yeah, they were so, lumped with the bears. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, yeah, understandable. Yeah. I mean, now it's uh, not considered a bear. It's in a different, it's not in Ursidae anymore. It's not in Ursus, the genus. It's yeah. a Procyon. I think it's a fam- some kind of family, Procyonidae. Yeah. yeah, it's in Anything its own. Else in- uh, no, I was researching it and I've learned some interesting things. So maybe a little taxonomy of, of uh, for starters, of course, this is a mammal, right? And so right. And this is a vertebrate. So with class mammalia. Um, yeah. And uh, let's see. I Carnivore always... is the, carnivora is the order. Yeah. So kingdom phylum class. Uh, class mammalia. mammalia and then order. order. Carnivora. Uh, carn- carnivora or carnivora. Yeah. And, and, and lots of familiar creatures in, in car- carnivora. Yeah, lots. Bears and raccoons and weasels and mink and, and cats. Wolverines and cats and dogs. Lots of, uh, lots of things in uh, that order. Yeah. And then we get down into the Procyonid. Day or Procyona D, however you want to pronounce yeah, it. Yeah, depends. All the day, taxonomists day, I actually, learned from pronounced it E, which I yeah, think is wrong, pro, maybe. But yeah, but whatever the scientists, I've talked to the Latin uh, folks at my college. Yeah. And uh, since a lot of scientists never had Latin, we've butchered the Latin pronunciation, but that's okay. We hear from them that whatever is in usage in your discipline is the way it should that be. That is the way. And I'm always conflicted because here I am at a classical school yeah, and all these Latin geeks are before me and I yes. say, pro, well, I'm, you I'm say not, I don't teach mammal. Day or you say Procyona D. Well, I use a lot of the family names in insect because I do teach entomology and yeah. they all end in A-E. Right. And we say Carabidae. Tenebriana day, but in Latin the A E is I, right? Not E or and I, a. Pro- <laughs> right? We do we do all the wrong You're ones? Just keeping but the Latinists on their right. toes. It's technically right the way we do it. Yeah. Um, Submit to the scientific order, Latinists. You go with the main. Yeah, you go with the mainstream. When in Rome. Do as the Romans, <laughs> and if you're in, now that we're scientists, generally aren't classically trained. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll pronounce it the way they do it, and then right. finally, the it, future it, generation of scientists 
That's right. Uh, get back to the Latin, <laughs> we might change back. You know, who knows? Procyonidae. So one thing I like to do when I first start re-researching -re a creature, I'll, I'll almost, and it'd be interesting to hear what you do. I think our brains work differently. Uh, every, yeah. yeah, work we differently. All work We're work all attracted to slightly different things. We all we all kind of have a different matrix for decision making, and and so I always go want to go to the range map first. Right, I, I, I do like the range map. Yeah, I do so like that. This creature is kind of like it's kind of like the black bear, or it's kind of like the red winged blackbird. Right, you but know? it is it is North American, except some some introduced. Yeah, so you look at the U.S. range map. And the whole map is red or whatever color your range map is. This thing is found almost all everywhere the in the continental U.S. Yeah, with some noticeable gaps. And all the way through Mexico and then through Central America. Okay. So it gets all the way down to Central America. Uh, so it's pretty much a North American mammal. Mm -hmm. Gets up into Canada. And I didn't look how far does it get up uh, to... I didn't see it going much uh, uh, too far to north Alaska. into Canada. I don't think they're found in Alaska. Okay. Might have to confirm that, but I but don't But there's think... been some introductions in Europe. So northern yeah. Europe, there's, uh, you know, populations yeah, there. Yeah, Germany is plagued with them. And then also the Caucasus um, between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. That whole area has got introduced raccoons and all the way over to, in Japan. Yeah, all the way over in Japan. It's interesting to think about a, a species that we consider native yeah. being an alien elsewhere. Yeah. And so these other places have invasive raccoons. Yeah. Invasive raccoons. That's right. And it, it makes sense that they're invasive because they're you know, really they smart. are so smart and they're omnivores, quintessential omnivores. They really so are. they're really they eat plants, invertebrates, vertebrates, uh, lots of different things. And they're very opportunistic. They like to I mean, they can be in cities running, doing dumpster runs, and they can be <laughs> in the prairie. Uh, and, yeah. their, and their prairie home range has to be a lot bigger because they've got to range farther to get enough food. Whereas yeah. they're, they have a much smaller home range, say, in the city because they've got There's a lot of trash lot cans of to choose from. <laughs> a lot of smorgasbords going on. It's like raccoons, Tem Templeton in the Charlotte's Web story yeah, here. Yeah. 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 <laughs> remember that I remember one? Templeton. <laughs> oh, that was one of our favorites yeah. growing up. So raccoons, procyonidae, I was looking at the looking at the diversity, and some folks will some folks will delimit or or distinguish between up to twenty-two subspecies wow. of raccoon. And it seems as if the it seems as if the epicenter, and this is this is kind of speculation, but it's kind of fun to think about. You know, where where did uh, where did Iraq where did the raccoons um, start? Where yeah. did they start? Yeah, you know, and so and it, it, it at least the, the greatest diversity seems to be in the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. A lot of these uh, eat a lot of these Caribbean islands have their own subspecies. Right. In fact, there's at least one extinct different species of raccoon that was um, that was found only on uh, one of the Caribbean islands. Huh. And these Caribbean islands, the the raccoons tend to be smaller. And they also tend to be paler. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I noticed, I haven't looked at the different subspecies. And subspecies is not a real hard and fast thing. It's a geographic, limited to a particular geographical area. And yeah. it usually has some uh, field marks that are a little bit different than the other subspecies. Yeah. And I noticed when I went to Costa Rica back in 2000, 
2012 and 2013, uh, we went to the beach uh, and there were raccoons down there. You know, I knew that was uh, a Mundi country, you know, yeah. those yeah, yeah, ring tails yeah. that those are cool run animals. around the tropical new world neotropics with a very long snout. And, you know, some people might think, well, are you sure they were right? Aren't they the, weren't you looking at the quaddies? And I no, these were definitely raccoons, yeah. but they were definitely different looking than the, the ones that, you know, you see up in the United States, up in the Rocky Mountains. and interesting east coast that they were more slender maybe because they didn't have all that under fur and so living in the tropics they could be less furry Mm -hmm. and so they were slender and their face again not a kawadi but their face was more slender and uh they were definitely raccoons that were opportunistically looking for scraps that tourists left on the beach along with the white-faced capuchins uh, oh, interesting. Monkeys that were going after all sorts of tourist snacks and stuff that they could pilfer from backpacks and things like that. But um, the monkeys were a little more daring. The raccoons stayed off in the edge of the beach in the woods more. Monkeys would dash out on the sand and I didn't see any raccoons. I'm sure they do. Maybe at night they would come through, but different looking raccoon yeah, yeah. down there. Yeah, there's a Barbados raccoon. There's apparently a, a one of the keys off of Florida, Torch Key. There's a Torch Key raccoon. Okay, and wow. And so a subspecies, of course. One of the interesting kind of phenomena or patterns we see in mammals, and maybe you can help me with this one because I can't remember the name of the rule. We, we don't really have oh, many laws in no, biology, no. but we have a lot of rules. Rules, We're in yeah. rules in ecology. Of course, we break them all the time, too. Oh, um, but I think there's I a know rule. What, uh, about north and latitude Yeah, thing. as you go north in latitude, you tend to get, if the species ranges uh, pretty significantly in latitude, uh, then the individual population or the individuals in the population that are lower in latitude further south tend to be smaller Right. And as you get in upper latitudes, you have much bigger body mass. Yes, that's, and that's true. that's kind of a general rule about a lot of mammals. That is true. You see Even, that with white-tailed deer. You see that mm-hmm. with bears. Yeah. And it's because a bigger, you know, it's colder up north and uh, a bigger body is going to retain the heat yeah. better. Yep. Actually, I don't know if it was for the same reason, but box turtles are bigger or at least the eastern box turtles bigger up north. Oh, interesting. Um, How far so does their range extend north? All the way up to southern Maine. Okay. And then all the way down to northern Florida, the okay. eastern box turtle. Then you've got Florida box turtle hmm. subspecies. So I'm just comparing one subspecies. Yeah. And you go up north, you get a bigger turtle. You go south, it's a smaller turtle. But then you got the Gulf Coast box turtle, oh, different wow. subspecies, and that's the biggest of the subspecies. Oh, interesting. Yeah, hmm. that, definitely bigger. So, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a generalization, but when you hop from one subspecies to the next, then the trend breaks down because, yes, within eastern box turtle, it yeah. gets bigger up north, but then you switch to another subspecies and it happens to be bigger in the Gulf area. Yeah, interesting. Anyway, now we're, we, I've, we've gotten I've back dry, into herps. Yeah, sorry. That happened sorry, so naturally. Sorry, I just, you know, know more about turtles. So, so the let's talk about any cool facts. Yeah, cool facts about the, cool facts about the, the raccoon. 
one of the things that occurs to me that's just incredibly interesting about the raccoon, and you'll probably have some biology to help back this up, is its ability. We said it's an omnivore. It's a quintessential omnivore. And they especially, one thing that makes them interesting, many, many creatures will kind of focus on one habitat uh, type to get their food. And raccoons are, you know, they're found across the, across the North America. So they're found in all kinds of habitats. But they they will they will hunt in an aquatic ecosystem every bit as much in a terrestrial, and so mm-hmm. they're known they're known to favor crayfish in particular. Right, and uh, it's great it's great to go down to the creek because you can often see their prints, and mm-hmm. their prints are very distinct. Right, they have these Little very hand. well defined uh, phalanges, toes. I guess, or toes. Yeah. yeah, you could say the the front feet are their toes, but the the front feet are very very much like hands and yeah. very dexterous so they can grab things very well and wash things they and they show this kind of strange washing behavior uh-huh. uh when they when they hunt for crayfish or other aquatic creatures they mm-hmm. they'll pick them up and they'll put them back in the water and they'll rub them with their paws and there's been some speculation some people have you know have have wanted to test the hypothesis are they actually washing uh, their food and and some people speculate that they're softening the uh, the calcareous or chitinous exoskeleton so they can get inside of the meat better. Um, but huh. we don't really know. Don't they wash fish too? I um, mean, if they catch a fish, yeah, they they'll wash aquatic food. They don't seem to do the same thing with terrestrial food unless right. they're in captivity. Yeah, then in captivity they wash a lot of their food. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, huh. But they're incredible. They're very they're, good at hand coordination. Yeah, very they're good. incredibly they're incredibly nimble. And they're good climbers too. You know that's why you hear the phrase "tree a coon." You know when they're yeah <laughs> coon they can, hunting, and they can climb straight up the tree and straight down. Yeah, where bears a lot, aren't really good at going down. Yeah, yeah. They um and so their intelligence. I I'm I'm kind of fast fascinated with them because they're they're so intelligent. They'll they'll often so the washing the washing kind of um habit or kind of I would say suggests intelligence. Uh, the, they also will stand up on their back, uh, their back feet, uh, for a short period of time to get to food and, and kind of stretch their bodies up. Uh, so mm-hmm. they're not always on all fours. Yeah. Um, but they, yeah, they're incredibly intelligent for being a, I would say a, a small to medium sized mammal. And you see that in their food selection and some researchers have studied this. There's a couple of early 20th century texts on raccoon intelligence, um, or, or studies on raccoon intelligence. And one of the tests is is really to try to see if they can distinguish between uh, the number of food objects inside a, in a kind of enclosed container. Mm-hmm. And apparently raccoons can at least count up to four. Okay. So wow. they were able to distinguish between one, two, three, or four food objects. Okay. However that test yeah. worked. Neat. Yeah. So have you had any encounters with coons that are uh, worth Yeah, playing? I would say a couple. The one that stands out the most to me. I was, it was my, might've been my first field type of job. I was working for the, at the time, the Smithsonian operated a conservation research center in Front Royal, Virginia, which is only, yeah. So my dad grew up there. Neat. Yeah. That was, uh, that's only about 45 minutes from where my parents live. Okay. And so it was, was, at the time it was called the Smithsonian CRC, Conservation Research Center. It's an interesting history there. That place was, uh, that place was used for, as part of um, some type of training center during the World Wars. Okay. Um, and then it was kept in federal hands and then eventually uh, got handed over to the Smithsonian. 
Mm. And they operated as an, uh, a breeding a breeding research and a breeding center for endangered species. Okay. Yeah. One of my fellow grad students worked there. Okay. Yeah. Because he was George Mason and he worked yeah. there on the breeding. I think there was, I think they did artificial insemination yep. of animals and stuff like that. That's, that's a, it's we don't a, have to go into that. Yeah. What's interesting. <laughs> well, that stuff's interesting too. Maybe yeah. at some point will, what creature was he working on? Do you know? I, I can't remember. It was so okay. long ago. So I, I, I got connected with folks there and then um, the Smithsonian also has a migratory bird project. Mm-hmm. And so I got hired by their migratory bird, one of their lead scientists there, Lisa Pettit. And Lisa was studying, she was studying hooded warblers and some other songbirds in the Cuyahoga River National okay. Recreation Area up near Cleveland. Uh, so after, I, after the river caught on fire, right? Yeah, way after the river <laughs> caught on fire. It's really pretty up now there it's in the summer. And, and Cleveland has, and Akron and Cleveland, Ohio has this great uh, kind of system of trail, bike trails and parks. And so our job was to, to, to study the hooded warbler and wood thrushes and some other birds. But I remember one day I was in the woods and kind of in between checking on bird nests and just standing there. And I think I'd just seen a rose-breasted grosbeak or something. And that was, I remember that summer was a really bad gypsy moth summer. Oh, okay. And so lots of leaves were falling from the trees. Way before August. Wow. And uh, just because those gypsy moths were having a field day, they were just snipping them up and eating them and and the remains would fall to the ground. Um, And I was standing there and I heard something or saw something out of the corner of my eye and I turned and here comes this big old adult raccoon, maybe 20 yards, maybe a little closer, walking straight down this massive old white oak tree. I thought, well, that's pretty cool. Just walking straight down. um, The trunk. The trunk. And comes to the ground and, and just kind of uh, continues on its way. And then behind it come three young raccoons. That's great. All in a line. So they're proceeding down this tree together right. as a family group. They didn't see me at all. I'd been still enough that they didn't notice I was there. So I just got to watch them in that's, their little procession. That's great. March down the tree and, and head to wherever yeah. they were going. You know, I had, I've seen more than this, but. I had an encounter when I was a kid. We went up to the lake, a small side lake near Coeur d'Alene in northern Idaho. And somebody had let us use their trailer up at the lake. And we went up there. I was, I don't know, 11, 12 years old. And they had a rowboat and a dock. And my dad and I went out in Thompson Lake. And uh, it was a lake with lots of lily pads on the shoreline. I mean, and some of them just very dense lily pads. And then in the middle of the lake, there was a bog. And like you, I saw this mother raccoon leading her three, they are kits. Yeah, they are kits. That's right. And she was trying to move them or either they were migrating, take a shortcut across the lake, or she was trying to move them to the bog in the middle of the lake. I don't know if that was the new residence that she wanted to, or just, you know, taking them for a hunt. But um, she was just cruising across the open water and her three kits were getting stuck in the lily pads. Oh, trying to swim through them. Yeah. And uh, so two of them were a little stronger and there was a runt and two of them, they gave up and climbed up on the lily pads. And literally, they were sitting on the lily pads. It was so dense. Wow. 
and their younger sibling, the runt, not younger, but a sibling that was the runt, was looking like it was struggling in the lily pads, sort of tangled up, not drowning, but you could tell not happy. Yeah. And my dad and I rode over to this little guy and stuck our, our oar. And that little kit was so, so eager to grab something solid. Wow. And that kit just grabbed onto our oar like, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And uh, we lifted up the little kit into our boat and sat and it sat there just very glad to be on some terra firma. Wow. And then I saw the other two stronger siblings just crouched together on the lily pads like we're done with, you know, mom is just too uh, demanding here. <laughs> and I decided to try to go out walking on the water. I was young. I was 11 years old and I took the oars from the boat. I was going to try to get the the other two kits. <laughs> and I took the two oars and used those two oars as snowshoes on the lily pads. Wow. Yeah, I knew I was going to sink if I stood on the lily pads, but the oars, I thought, could support me. Yes. And they did, but not, I wasn't steady. You didn't steady. have a third balancing oar. I didn't have a third balancing oar. Yeah. I couldn't just use a cane. Hey, I'm impressed. That's a No, and move. I got out of the boat and I was standing on my lily, I, I was standing on the lily pads. And that I was is gonna, cool. And I was going to walk towards these two crouching, shivering kits. And I think they were starting to wanting to move away from me. And I knew I was in a precarious situation. So I backed up and got back in the boat. And uh, before we, you went we, all the way in, yeah, we rode, rode over to our dock and let the, the, uh, runt go there. Hopefully mom collected all of her you separated kids. the runt from the, the family. It wasn't too far. I mean, it was, that runt was going to drown without our help. Right. So at least. Did mom ever, um, I, respond see, to you guys? You didn't see her? Didn't see her. Hopefully the, the kit found, it wasn't too far away from oh, yeah. the rest of the family and hopefully mom could have. Call it, call it back. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a cool story. Anyway, that was basically my only raccoon story. I've seen them before, but yeah. They're big. They can be They big. can get big. And, uh, but they don't, don't live. I was noticing another thing. They don't live very long okay. in the wild. What's uh, their lifespan? Well, I mean, this is average. sort of data average of 1.8 to three years in the wild. But wow, that's because they, you know, get killed by something, the like yeah. roadkill or other, I don't know, does what eats any, uh, but anyway, in captivity, they can live up to 20 years. Okay. But generally, they don't make it past five yeah. in the wild. So, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I have one other raccoon story. It's kind of an indirect observation. Uh, one of the, I got to participate in a couple of interesting short-term research projects up here. Uh, one involved the Coeur d'Alene salamander, and then the other one was, um, it was a study to try to just get a sense for what mammals were in certain parts of this one creek drainage, creek drainage out east of here called Feather Creek. Mm -hmm. And Feather Creek is, um, it dumps into the Palouse or dumps into the Potlatch uh, River. And um, Feather Creek's interesting. It's got bull trout. It's, there's some pretty neat hiking trails out there. And 
one of the we are setting up uh, game cameras to to, mm-hmm. to look at bigger mammals, but then we also set up little kind of bait stations to see what other types of smaller mammals might show up. And what we did is we took like a big cookie sheet, basically, mm-hmm. and we'd uh, the outside the outside inch or two of the cookie sheet around the perimeter. We would spray with this this really uh, kind of um, this kind of bluish blackish paint that that's designed to to get tracks of animals. And then in the center of the cookie sheet, we'd put blotting paper. And then in the very center of the cookie sheet, we put a little tin of cat food. Okay. And so small mammals would smell the cat food. This is the the theory. Mm-hmm. They'd walk towards the cat food. They'd get their feet get their... inky. Yep. It was more of an ink than a paint, but it was in a spray can. Mm-hmm. Uh, they get their feet inky and they leave really nice, beautiful, distinct tracks on the blotting paper. And so it was a really great way. And the game camera was nearby too. So the goal was to get photo evidence and then some tracks mm-hmm. of these various smaller mammals. Neat. And so uh, lots of raccoon uh, yeah. prints yeah. on these blotting papers, as well as, you know, some weasels, some squirrels, maybe fisher. I've seen one fisher in my mm-hmm. life, which was way up Kelly Creek, but uh, we think we might've gotten a fisher track here too. So that's kind of a fun thing anybody can do. Yeah. If you're interested in what's cruising through the backyard, yeah. you know, get a little, get a little booklet on, on mammal tracks and yeah. you can distinguish between skunks and raccoons and squirrels and rabbits pretty easily. And even some hidden uh, motion cameras. Yeah. yeah. Those game and cameras, you... are, they've gotten really cheap now. Yeah. Put a couple in great. the backyard. That'd be fun. That'd be really fun. Yeah. So what else do we know about raccoons here? Uh, well, do... I, you know, they've got the, the underfur, the dense underfur mm-hmm. that keeps them warm in the winter. Already said that they're good climb. We've you've seen them. You've seen them walk straight down a tree trunk. They're good climbers. Yeah. And apparently not, not as good as swimmers, but they will swim. All right. So, and a uh, pretty even spread of what they eat. I think the plants, invertebrates are like 40% of their diet. Yeah. Um, and vertebrates, 27, plants, 33, something like that. And uh, yeah, they really know how to adapt to whatever place they're in. Yeah. Whether it's the tropics or way up north, mountains, marshlands, they are all over the place. And the cities, the country. Do you know about their, um, do you know about how, how many kits they tend to produce? Two to five. Okay. I think is the general range. And we both saw a we female saw with three. three. Yeah. So. Yeah. One other sense. interesting thing people often think of when they think of raccoons is, is rabies, right? Hmm. And so. Uh, rabies is is still out there in the world. We don't kind of think of it as an epidemic as maybe we did 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are pretty on high alert. Uh, the rabies shot has gotten more effective and, and not as painful and, and terrible as the sequence of shots they, they used to give you, supposedly. Yeah. Um, but rabies, raccoons are a big carrier. And uh, I saw a 2008 uh, kind of uh, study or just maybe a, a catalog of, of uh, people bitten by different animals and Rabies or raccoons were the second leading cause of human rabies infections wow. after bats. Okay. So bats number one so and is then it followed because by raccoons. It's not just a carrier. They're, they're deranged uh, and bite you because- That's of... my assumption. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of research has gone into the different, we've heard, we hear about variants and subvariants all the time now, but these terms, it, 
amazingly, these terms existed pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. Yep. And there is a raccoon rabies variant. And okay. there's a bat variant. And so mm-hmm. apparently the raccoons in the western part of the range, the uh, western part of the U.S., aren't as frequent carriers okay. as raccoons on the east side of the country. Me? Yeah. Wow. So a cool creature that yeah. everyone probably will get to see at some point in their yep. lifetime. Whether you're in the city or in the country, there's a good chance you might see a raccoon. That's right. So if you Especially hear something- Especially if you're observant and you have lots of uh, available food around. Yeah. Yeah. If you hear something rustling around the trash can at night, maybe sneak out there and peek through the window. Yeah. yeah. Might be a raccoon. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. We'll see you All next right, time. All right, Gordon. Procyon Lotor. Yeah. And we have to figure out feature. what we're going to talk about next. All right. We'll thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening. And remember, for all your homeschool science needs, go to noeoscience.com. That's N-O-E-O science.com.